different things that are happening. So anyway, let me go ahead and pray for us and, and ask God to bless our time as we um, come to his word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that you have spoken to us, that you revealed to us who you are. We, with our limited minds, with um, the shadows of sin, the propensity to sin in our own lives, are not able to see you rightly. And so you have revealed yourself to us in your word, by your spirit, and through the community of believers, we are able to encourage each other in, in a true knowledge of who you are and to learn what it means to work out that knowledge in our lives. And I pray this morning as we come to your word that you would be honored, that we would listen, that we would hear from you, that our lives would be transformed as a result of that. As we walk through these doors again, as we walk out, there would be a truth, there would be something that we need to do, there's something we need to think, there's something we need to, to, to believe and to love even more so when we walked in, that you would enable us to do that. And so we're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at a, a parable today. A parable of the unforgiving servant is the title. It's called the number, I think it was last fall, uh, led our Wednesday morning study, went through a number of the parables. And so I've been, I could say, I have a preaching series. Uh, over the last several months, I have preached through some various parables. And, and, and this is the next one I wanted to address. And it deals pretty honestly and openly about forgiveness, forgiveness between us and God, but more uh, especially it deals with our forgiveness amongst and between each other. And so let's read this passage together, starting in verse 21 through the end of the chapter 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down, fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Forgiveness is not an easy issue sometimes to talk about in the context of relationships. It can be very hurtful. It can be very delicate to know exactly how to handle this. But Jesus is very clear about the nature of forgiveness and how the vertical forgiveness that we've received from God plays itself out in our relationships 
around each other. But it's difficult for us. C.S. Lewis wrote, Everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. That everyone sees forgiveness as a great idea. It's a wonderful thing and you should do it until they find someone, something that they need to forgive that is hurtful before them. It becomes a completely different kind of thing. It becomes challenging for us as we find ourselves offended by a brother or sister, something they've done or said to us. And so Jesus addresses this particular issue, and indeed it's a theme throughout the book of Matthew. It seems to to be of a particular importance that the way we treat each other, the way that we learn or grow in our forgiveness of each other is indicative of the forgiveness that we have from God, and we need to understand the connection between the two. And this parable that that we have from the, the gospel of Matthew We'll find it's the only place, it's the only gospel that we'll find it in. So Matthew has an interest and is probably one of the clearest places in Scripture we'll find this teaching on forgiveness from God into each other, the necessity of that. Even as we talk about parables here in this particular parable, just a reminder of what parables are. They're tools that Jesus used. They're tools that he used to reveal the kingdom of God to his hearers. He would tell them about it. He would demonstrate it in the, in the frame of these stories. They're not just simply illustrations. They're not entertainment that he would need to use to keep their attentions, their ways, that he would teach them and d- display to them what the kingdom of God was like. If you will, they're kind of handles on the kingdom of God that people could grasp and understand what this kingdom of God was like, what this rule and reign was, of Christ was like. They're handles for them. And then in this particular parable, the handles that he gives them are the handles of forgiveness. He frames the kingdom of God in terms of forgiveness from the king and forgiveness to the subjects in the way that they treat each other. And so forgiveness first begins in this parable. It comes from the king. It's demonstrated by him, and it's intended to be manifested, to be shown among the subjects of the king in the way that they treat each other. The context, this parable, and the question that Peter asks that prompts the parable It follows a very significant teaching as well that we have from Jesus about if a brother sins against another one, how you are to go to that brother and to confront him with that. If he doesn't respond, you bring two with you. And if he doesn't respond to that, then you bring him into the church and you deal with it there. And it's a picture of the role and the authority of the church to bring restoration to a brother who is in sin, but also reconciliation and relationships amongst each other. And so it's based upon this teaching that Jesus gives that Peter asks this simple question. And he asks the question about how many times is he to forgive his brother when his brother sins against him. And it's important for us to understand the question that Peter asks. What exactly is he getting at? What's implied in the question if we're going to understand the answer that Jesus gives? Because in typical Jesus, Son of God fashion, the answer he gives is not the answer that we might expect nor did Peter expect the answer that he got. And so to understand the answer, we need to understand to some degree the question that what Peter is after there. And what Jesus is wanting to do, if I could simply put it this way, he wants to reorient our thinking about forgiveness away from personal forgiveness of offenses against us to reorient it around the king and the forgiveness that he offers to us. And so the question that Peter asks it says that Peter came up to him and said upon this teaching, immediately preceding this, he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How many times, as many times as seven times am I called to forgive my brother? What is the upper limit of that? 
Now, Peter, is, he's one of those guys, right, that he says the things that we think but aren't willing to say. But he just says it. He just lays it out there. And so he asks the question, and we go, you know, that's not a bad question. I, I wonder how Jesus is going to respond to this. How, how many times do I really do I have to forgive someone who's offended me? Is there a numerical number? Is it five? Is it seven? Is it ten? Is it forty? What exactly is that number? And so Peter asked the question, and, and he gets it right at one level, right? He understands that forgiveness is necessary in and among the kingdom of God, that we need to forgive and we need to learn to forgive. But he goes a little bit further, and he says, as many as seven times. Now, again, we want to, it's interesting that the, the common teaching of the day, it seems that the tradition was, the, the rabbinic teaching was that three times would be the maximum number of times that you would forgive an offense of the same person. Now, I don't know much beyond that, but they would say you, could, you need to forgive a person three times, and at that point, there's no obligation beyond that. So Peter goes even beyond that teaching. You know, he doubles it, and then he adds one for good measure, and he says, is that as many times? Is it seven times? Is that sufficient number of times that we are to forgive our brother for things that they have done for, to us and against us? And so he gets in the right vicinity, and he's asking a question, and yet Jesus gives a different kind of answer. And even as we think about that, right, we begin, okay, seven times, what immediately do we begin to do once a number is placed upon the number of times? What is typical human nature at that very point in time, right? We pull out our list and we begin checking off. We go one, two, three. We begin counting the number of offenses that others have had against us. We begin to count and look at the degree and the number and the quantity and the quality of that offense. We begin to add it up and we see very quickly how petty human forgiveness is. And the question that Peter asked leads us to understand the limits of human forgiveness and what we offer. Because the first thing we do is start adding up. We start making our list of people who have offended us. And, and this is what Peter wants to know. How many times? What's the upper limit that I have to forgive? How many number of times? At what point am I no longer obligated to offer forgiveness to a person? What's that limit and what's that point? You know, if we had that number, that's exactly what we would do. If it's seven, we'd start adding up and we would stop. But Jesus gives the answer. He gives really two answers for him. One is in a numerical form, but it's a rather obscure one. And then secondly, he tells a story. And if you happen to have asked Jesus a question, and he gives you an obscure numerical answer, and then he begins to tell you a story, you got to start thinking to yourself, maybe my question is a little bit off balance. Maybe there's something not quite right with the way I asked my question. And so Jesus continues to answer for him, reframing Peter's understanding of forgiveness, because he wants to translate it from human terms into divine terms, from a finite commodity to an infinite commodity. Because the kingdom of God, the commodity of forgiveness is an infinite commodity. So the first answer he gives him, he says, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven different versions will, will approach that one differently. And the difference between 77 and 490 is really irrelevant. The point is what Jesus is saying is as many times as is necessary is the number of times that you are to forgive. The numbers themselves have kind of a symbolic significance for us. For them, they understand that seven was a number of completion. You multiply times ten, a number, another number of completion. You add seven and you have 77. It's not about the number of times. It's rather about the completion. Whatever it takes is whatever is necessary for you to forgive. The number of times that you need to forgive is the number of times that you need to forgive. 
It's a number of completion. Some of you who are parents, you might have had those times with your kids where there's maybe an attitude being evidenced in, in, their, in them. And you say, go to your room and come out when you're ready. And they say, how long? 10 minutes? 15 minutes? Five hours? How long until I come out? And you say, you come out when you're ready to come out. You stay in there as long as it's necessary for you to have the right attitude. And what Jesus is saying, you forgive as many times as is necessary. Because the kingdom of God is not just about counting. It's about understanding about relationships have a higher value than just counting and holding offenses. And so he gives them this number, but then he goes on and he tells the parable. And the, the parable is really a story. It's really an account to explain the number, the number 77. If I could put it like this, basically what Jesus wants them to know is since the number, since there is limitless forgiveness that's asked of you in, in terms of your relationship with each other, limitless forgiveness is, is really what constitutes your relationships. You need to always be forgiving each other and receiving forgiveness for each, for each, from each other. Since that is the case in the kingdom of God, it's necessary that you understand the real source of forgiveness. Because there is no end to the forgiveness that you offer to one another, you need to understand that the real source of forgiveness is not from you. It's not from you being offended. It's not from a human origin. It's divine in its nature. And so he tells them this, this parable to give us a basis and understanding of forgiveness. Now, what I want to do today, that was kind of all by introduction. I want to walk through this parable, and it's really broken down into three parts. At the end of each part, we have a surprise. There's something that happens in that parable that, that should surprise us. We go, oh, I didn't see that coming. And there's kind of an escalation of surprise. By the end, we should be most surprised of all of the different points that we're going to go. We're going to walk through each of these, and we're going to pull a couple threads out as we understand what Jesus is telling us about forgiveness. And then I'm going to make a couple of applications at the end of this. So the parable, the first part is really 23 through 27. I'm going to go ahead and reread through this. I want you to catch the story again. First act of this account. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. We see that the kingdom of heaven is about a king. It's about a king who demonstrates infinite mercy to one of his servants in light of an infinite debt that the servant owes to him. We see that this day is set that the king has in which all of his debts, everything is going to be settled in terms of what they owe him. These probably, these men that are coming to him, these servants, are, are probably stewards that have been entrusted with a kind of authority and power and finances of the kingdom to go do kingdom business. So here you have been given a certain quantity or an authority. You know, go do business with this money that you've given. Collect what you need to collect. Spend what you need to spend. But now you come and you make an accounting for all of that. Now you settle with me what you've done with the money and you show where it's gone and what you've done with it. Well, this particular one has come as he is, as, and he comes with an incredible debt. He is brought, which means he probably doesn't want to come. He's smart as he realizes the debt that he has. He's brought to the king and the debt is shown. It's clear. It's obvious. He can't hide it. It's 10,000 talents. Now that number is really lost on us and 10,000 is a, is a large number, but to them in that day and age would have been an astronomical number. 
It was the number combined with the currency that really combined together. We see the enormous amount that is understood here for his debt. The 10,000, again, is more symbolic. It is, it is a huge number. We might use a term, it might be a billion, although a billion doesn't seem to be as much now as it used to be. We might use a term, a gazillion. You know, we owe him a gazillion dollars. He owes him so much more than he can ever pay him. It is an astronomical number. It is so high you can't even think about it. Commentaries have all kinds of, of interesting information about 10,000 talents, and, and one of them I found interesting is that uh, this was, 10,000 talents would be 1,000 times the total tax revenue of Galilee and Judea put together. Okay, I don't know how much that is, but it's an awful lot. That 10,000 talents is 1,000 times that tax revenue, and there's other kinds of ways. But it is a very high number. It's astronomically large. And what you have is the highest number they could imagine and the highest currency they could imagine put together against the king. This debt is owed against the king. Just not another person. It's owed against the highest authority in the land. And then we begin to get our hands around the debt that this man owes to the king. And his, his circumstances are this. His consequences are serious. His family and his children and all that he has will be sold in order to make some sort of payment and punishment towards his debt. And again, there's no way this debt will be paid by the sale of any of these property. And so they will, he and his family, for the rest of their lives, serve as slaves as a result of his mistakes, as a result of his mishandling of the money that had been entrusted to him. And so he begs for mercy. He asks the wrong question, though. He wants more time. No amount of time would allow him to pay that debt off. But the king shows him and gives him what exactly he needs. He shows him mercy. And he says, as he looks upon him and says that he has pity, and he offers him mercy, and he forgives the debt. He forgives the 10,000 talents that he owes. And the beauty of this is the king, out of his wealth, absorbs this debt and says, I am not going to charge you with this. I'm not going to saddle you with this debt. I'm not going to make you pay this debt. I will cover it myself. Out of my own wealth, I will absorb this debt in myself. And I will set you free and you will enjoy the benefits of freedom and forgiveness of this debt out of what I have and what I can bring and what I can offer to you. And we wonder about the wealth of this king, if he can absorb such an incredible debt in himself to offer forgiveness to one of his servant, one of his slaves. And we see a picture of the great mercy and infinite grace of this king that's offered to this one. And we have a, this should be the first surprise for us as we see that this king would demonstrate this kind of mercy to a servant, to one of his who had mishandled his money, that he would wipe the slate clean, that he would say, you no longer owe me anything. Go and be free. And we see this incredible mercy that the king demonstrates, that the king's actions are a model, they're a basis for the rest of the kingdom to see, for the rest of his servants to see how gracious he is that he would forgive such a debt to this one. And we have we should be surprised at that. We should go, wow, how could he do that? Why would he do that? Well, it's because of his kindness and his mercy to this one. But then we have the second part of this play in verse play, the story in verse 28, the second act. But it begins, and it's not a good start. But when that same servant went out, he found one of the fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, 
have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And we look at his response to that and we see that one that has been forgiven of so much that he demands payment of such a small amount, even though he himself had received and had been a recipient of infinite mercy. As he turns around, this one that owes him a, sheer, a mere pittance compared to what he had, been re, he had been forgiven from, he demands it of him. He says, this same servant, this one who'd received this now goes out. And apparently the picture is something like this. He's leaving the courtyard of the king. He's been forgiven this great debt. Upon leaving the courtyard, at some point he sees a servant of his. Probably the implication is this servant is coming to pay and to settle accounts with the king. As the servant's coming in to pay accounts, he recognizes, hey, you owe me money. And he demands the hundred denarii at that point in time. And it's speculative, but it's possible what this guy is doing is coming to make amends with the, with the king. He has a debt to the king to pay. He's not able to pay him right now because he owes the king something. And so as he does that, this man requires it of him. And he begs of him, just like he had begged of the king, will you forgive me this? Give me time and I will pay. And certainly 100 denarii was so much less than the 10,000 talents. 100 denarii might be something like five or $10,000 in our money. It's about 100 days uh, uh, wages for a laborer of that day. So it's not a small amount, but it's certainly so small and minuscule in comparison to the amount that he had been forgiven. And so our second surprise is this, right? Our surprise is, whoa, how can you be forgiven for so much? Find one who owes you so little. This one is your fellow servant working for the king, and you demand it of him so much so that you lay hands on him. You begin to choke him. Your greed and your violence and your anger comes out in, in wanting to extract and that debt from him. And you throw him into prison. You throw him into jail until he can make payment on that. How can you receive mercy like this and yet demonstrate such vengeance and such resentment in this kind of way? And so we're surprised at his actions. And we should be surprised. The text screams to us a question. And the question is this. How could this one who has been, been forgiven so much by the king, how could he be so resentful and demanding of his fellow servant for so little? How could he who has been forgiven so much be so resentful, resentful and demanding of such a small amount of money? And you go, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? And that's the point of the story. It doesn't make any sense that one would respond like this. But then we move on to the third part of this story, of this parable. Verse uh, 31, when his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master de- delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And in this third act, we find that the merciful king revokes his mercy and he exercises his justice upon this wicked and ungrateful servant. And we see the tables turn. He offers and he offers forgiveness. And we're surprised at this, that that this king who has offered the mercy would now so quickly revoke it and would retake it from him. And he summons this servant as he brings him brings him into his presence. And at this, at this point, he identifies him as a wicked servant. 
It says, you wicked servant. And what's interesting here, the wickedness, he wasn't identified as wicked from his prior activity of mishandling the money that he had. But the wickedness now is associated with the way that he treats one of his fellow servants. He is considered wicked now because of the way he mishandled the forgiveness that he had been given. As one commentator put it, he said this wickedness was not because he mishandled money, but was because he mishandled the forgiveness that he had been given. And it's understood in that way that he does not understand what he has been given by the king. And he is wicked because of the way he would treat one. He had used his own freedom. He was free. He was on the streets. He used his own freedom that the king had paid for to go and exact this debt from this person. He didn't understand the purpose of the forgiveness and the freedom that he had been given by the king. And so the king brings him in. He calls him wicked. He says, should not. Don't you understand the necessity, the moral necessity for you to exercise the forgiveness that I've given to you? Don't you understand the necessity that you live out of and express that forgiveness that I have demonstrated to you in such a great way? How can you use the forgiveness that I've given to you only on yourself? You see, it's necessary that a forgiven man act like one. It's necessary that forgiven people act like forgiven people. And how is it that forgiven people act? They act ready to dispense of the forgiveness that they've received in an extraordinary way. He goes on to say, you of all people. He says, should, you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? And he emphasizes the relational aspect. He says, I'm the king. But this is your fellow servant. He says, on your fellow servant, shouldn't you have had mercy on him? He's just like you. You're on the same level. You both work for me. And what else you have in common is this. You both understand what it means to be in debt. You both understand what it means that you to owe somebody else something. Except you have received forgiveness. How can you act in this way towards him? And the same is true for each one of us that we are servants of the king, that we share the common ground as his followers, as residents of his kingdom, and those who have experienced our debt forgiven, and we've experienced debts against each other, that we are called to forgive and called to receive forgiveness from. We are alike in that respect. And so we have this third surprise. The first one is this infinite mercy shown by the king. The second one is the ungrateful and wicked servant who can't, under, can't receive that, exacts the judgment on someone else. And then we have here where the master and the king revokes his mercy and exercises justice. And if we were amazed at the first, we should be astounded and a little bit afraid at this to see that one who would so willingly and so um, in an extraordinary way show his mercy in one case and another would exact and demand justice upon this one. And then Jesus steps out of the story at this point, and very clearly he says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The application is this, so my Father will do to you. What is that? He will withhold his forgiveness of you if you do not exercise the forgiveness that he has given to you. If you do not demonstrate the forgiveness you have received in relationship to each other, he will withhold, he will withdraw, he will revoke that forgiveness from you. And these are hard words for us. And we go, wait a second here. What do we, what do, we do with this? How do we respond to these words? This, this teaching that is very severe. It's a teaching that reminds us, again, 
of the exacting nature of our great king. Let's remind ourselves again of where we started with the question. What Jesus wants to do is to help them understand, reinforce the truth that forgiveness amongst each other is an ongoing thing and there's not a limit to it. But in order to do that, he, just, he has to show the source of that forgiveness. He has demonstrated the source of that forgiveness in this king who's forgiven so much. And we understand that God has forgiven us of infinite amount. And it's demonstrated in the basis of all forgiveness is found in our divine king in Jesus Christ. And we learn about that human forgiveness. We learn about growing in our forgiveness from and through him. And it's oriented around him. Two applications I want to make as a result of this. The first one, statement like this, put it like this. Before we can truly understand and live out our personal, personal forgiveness in our relationship with each other, we must understand the magnitude and the nature of our sin and forgiveness in relation to our Lord. Before we can truly learn about forgiving each other, we need to understand the magnitude and the nature of forgiveness that we have received from him. And the two are connected in an inseparable way. Another way to put this, we can't begin to navigate the difficult and tricky water of personal forgiveness without being oriented and empowered by the forgiveness that comes alone from God. That if we operate in relationships and learn how to forgive, it needs to be oriented. It needs to be empowered by the forgiveness that only he can offer to us. Because at the end of the day, all sin is is ultimately against God. All sin has is, is an offense against him. People are always involved. A person will always be involved in some way, but ultimately that sin is against him. And David's psalm in Psalm 51 in his confession says, against you and you only have I sinned. And we recognize from that that God is the ultimate one to whom that we uh, sin against. And so it's against him that he's the one that will exact justice. But sin against people is real and it's validated primarily not because it's against them, but because it's against their maker. Because as we sin against each other, it's an offense, not just against a person, it's, against, it's an offense against God. And so sin is validated, it's understood, not just against a person, it is that, but even greater and more infinite of, of, um, of, of strength and, and, uh, is, and evil is that, is that it's against God, the one who has made us. But we need to come and see and understand the magnitude and the nature of our sin against God. We understand against him. And Jesus uses these numerical terms for us to help us get a picture, to get handles on the forgiveness that we've received. And he used the 10,000 as a picture, the 10,000 talents. He's taken the greatest number imaginable to them. And he multiplies that number times the greatest currency of the day, the talent, 50 to 80 pounds of precious metal. But even more than that, he then says that this debt is against the highest authority, the one who is most worthy, the one who is most worthy of being honored in our lives. This debt is against him. And this is the one that has forgiven us. The consequences that we would have is being eternally indebted to him, internally enslaved to our sin. And yet he has forgiven that. He has absorbed that debt in himself. And he has granted to us forgiveness that he has paid for and offered it to us so that we can go free and live in this relationship with him. We've been freed and rescued from living in this debt and saddled with this debt. He's called us to live with him. But the final issue is we understand the connection between relationship or from forgiveness from God and our relationship with each other is this, that our understanding of this forgiveness will be seen and evidenced in what we do with it. 
if we truly understand what God has forgiven us from, it will be visible in our lives, in our relationships with each other and with others. If we truly understand the enormous debt that he has forgiven us from, it will be seen in the way we relate, in the way we forgive and receive forgiveness in our relationships with one another. And if that kind of forgiveness is not there in our relationships with one another, it begs the question, do we really understand the forgiveness that God has offered to us? So it's necessary, necessarily a part of our lives. What does a forgiven person act like? They act like a forgiving person. They act ready to forgive because of what they have been forgiven from. And the reality of our forgiveness from the king will necessarily yield and grow a kind of inclination and a willingness and even desire to live out that forgiveness in relationship with others. There's a connection, an inviolable, unbreakable connection between our experience of God's forgiveness and the exercise of it in our relationships with each other. Matthew, earlier in his gospel, in Matthew chapter 6, turn real quick, right in the the context of the Lord's Prayer and in the Lord's Prayer, hits on this exact notion and he connects for us the dots between the forgiveness, our forgiveness from God and our forgiveness to each other. Chapter 6, verse 12, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, he says, And forgive us our debts as we also uh, have forgiven our debtors. The connection between our forgiveness is with the way we forgive others. And then in verse 14 and 15, which Matthew adds, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And Jesus, without wavering, says it's necessary in the receiving of God's forgiveness that you learn and grow in forgiving others. It's a part of that. We read in our responsive reading from Colossians, there was a phrase in there that particularly I was interested in that Paul gives. He says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. How we forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. He is the model of our forgiveness. But then he says, so you must forgive. It's imperative. It's necessary that you forgive each other. Why is it necessary? You might ask the question, how can you not forgive? How can we not forgive each other when we have received the forgiveness from him? So we have a model in this forgiveness. We also have the power to do it and the command to do it. Herman Ritterbossa, that's a great, great name for a theologian, a Dutch theologian, says this from this passage, a commentary. Whoever tries to separate man's forgiveness from God's forgiveness will no longer be able to count on God's mercy. In doing so, he not merely forfeits this forgiveness, like the servant in the parable, but rather he shows he never had part in it. And if we are not willing to offer forgiveness to each other, we demonstrate, or the question is asked, do we, we, do we really have part in receiving the forgiveness that God has given to us? And if forgiveness is a kingdom commodity we each needed to live, to live in a relationship with the king, to receive forgiveness from him, and to, relieve, to live in a relationship with each other that we would give and receive forgiveness in this way, in the same way that the king has forgiven us. And so this characterizes the kingdom. It begins with the king, and it it trickles down, if you will, and is seen in our lives. Ask the question again, how does a forgiven person act? He acts as one who is ready to forgive. The final point I want to make, and the final point is this, that as we grow in our understanding of God's infinite forgiveness towards us, Personal forgiveness in our relationships with each other becomes possible, but it doesn't become easy. It becomes possible. 
we can get beyond the petty human forgiveness that we will tend to do, the adding up of how many times I've been offended, the quantifying of how a person has hurt me. We're able to move beyond that to the divine forgiveness that he has shown to us that enables us to not add up, to not keep track. But it's not easy to do. As I've received his forgiveness, as I understand the connection, the way I live it out, it's a challenge for us. There's a lot of questions about this message that Jesus does not answer in this text for us. There's a lot of questions about the application of the truth of God's forgiveness that we wish he would answer right here and now, but he doesn't answer them. He considers it sufficient that the message he gives is one in which the single most important thing is that we learn how our forgiveness from his, him is connected to our forgiveness of others. There's questions we ask and understand in a room like this. For each one of us, there are things, even as we think about, we think about forgiveness of things that have been done to us by others. It's a challenge. And what evokes in us is real and it's hard, but the bottom line is God calls us to consider to move in this direction. Questions we ask is how, exactly how do we do this? What does, a personal, what does personal forgiveness look like in various offenses? Does it mean that the relationship should look like nothing ever happened? Do you realize the hurt and the harm that was done to me? And how on earth can God expect me to forgive that person for what he has done? And yet as the most important piece in place, we begin to navigate these waters of forgiveness to find out what it really means and to learn how to do that. Now, the challenge for us as we think about forgiveness or unforgiveness, Peter's questions was kind of simplistic. And it implies that at some point you would just stop forgiving people and go on. But the nature of unforgiveness is not quite so simple. See, unforgiveness is never just benign. It's never without some sort of negative effect in our lives. Unforgiveness is always malignant. It will always generate something in our lives that is destructive in and to us. It is always violent. It will always create something. And it's always what is associated with unforgiveness are other characteristics like hatred and bitterness and vengefulness and resentment will come and grow if, if uh, unforgiveness re- resides there. And so forgiveness is a necessary aspect of living in the kingdom, not just, not just to live it out, but for our own souls it's necessary and important. And it's a test for us. If we're called to forgive somebody, how do we respond? In that given moment, when we look at the offense and we see the gravity of it and we see the hurt that it's caused in our lives, how do we respond? That's a test for us. It reveals a little bit about our spiritual condition. Now, it's true and clear that forgiveness is not a single point in time. It's not a single event in which it instantaneous time in which forgiveness is completely applied in our lives. We're human. We need time. And yet the process is important as we see God as the one who has set the model for us and has demonstrated it to us. We are able to grow from there. How does a a forgiven person live? They live ready and willing to forgive, not resistant to that idea. I want to conclude with a a short account. Um, Some of you might be familiar with the story of the hiding place. Corey Ten Boom suffered horribly under a Nazi Germany in concentration camps, watched her own sister Betsy killed. And, and, and after that, as she lived, she took the message of forgiveness that in Christ back to Germany. 
back to the very place where she suffered so much and from the, the source that she suffered so much. And she took it back. And in, in, this, in her story, in her account, she gives us a story of a situation, very, the very first time she came face to face with one of her persecutors. And it describes in this account the struggle to apply the very teaching that she had began to give. She writes this, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who'd stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, that's her sister, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a sigh of prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm ran through my hand. A current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness anymore that is our goodness on that, that the world's healing hinges, but it's on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with that command the love itself. God's given us a picture of the forgiveness that he has demonstrated to us. He calls us to live it out. How does a forgiven person live? They live ready to trust God that he will enable them to live out the forgiveness that he has given to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, what a great message we have before us here and a challenge to us to learn to forgive. Father, would you forgive us for our unforgiveness? And would you in that enable us truly understand what we've been delivered from and forgiven from that debt each day would you make us more mindful of that and as opportunities come to grant forgiveness and to receive forgiveness in our relationships would you enable us to do that father we are a needy family beyond even this um, think about this last week in the funeral with the grubs family we pray for them as they bury Ruth and pray that you'd be with them and comfort them and they would find in you that comfort as they celebrate her life and her love and your work in her life. Pray for Lorraine Canestra and her family and again, the physical needs there. We pray for them. We thank as well for the, the many multitude of people in Joplin that were affected by the tornado this last week. And Father, the different agencies are at work there that you would operate in and through them that you would use um, this as a time and an opportunity for them to look to you for strength and to find in you the only true hope. And so would you be with them? We pray for the Romania 
missions trip as they head this Tuesday, that as they leave, that you would strengthen them and that you would keep them safe and be with the leaders as they lead the team and, and that their time there would be one that would glorify you and benefit them and, and the others who are there as well. Father, help us to walk with you. Help us to remember who you are, what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to stand for the benediction. Uh, benediction reminds us again of, of our need for God. It says, work in our lives uh, to be able to, to live in harmony, to live in unity with one another. So receive this as God's benediction to us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, so that with one mouth together we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.